Thank you very much and good morning. Good to see you. Actually, the uh, the tactics with the heating is is uh, we, if you can't feel your extremities and you feel like you know you you actually freezing, you're not going to fall asleep while I'm speaking, are you? So actually, what I did is I turned the heating off last night before I preached. That's just a little confession there. Actually, I actually seriously can't feel my fingers very well at the moment. I'm just going to organise this. So look, tonight's really exciting, and we're not just saying that. I mean. You know, baptisms are massively exciting, and when I used to be senior pastor of a church uh, in Essex, it was always a massive highlight for us. We used to we used to talk about doing evening celebration. You know, we'd absolutely love it. It was just a kind of amazing atmosphere. It's people coming. You know, we're declaring people are coming from darkness into light, aren't we? Which is what we exist for. Which is why we're hoping we'll have a good turnout and it'll be a celebratory atmosphere, and not like um, we don't want baptisms that are like you're in a morgue. You know, because that's not what it is. I know Romans 6 says we die to the old way of life, and that bit in Romans 6 is a bit morbid, but the next sentence is really good. It says we raised a new life. So, you know, when we used to do baptisms uh, in, in Essex, we used to say to everyone, we'll come on to this a little bit later, we used to say to everyone, come, come around the baptistry and, you know, hang out and have a look, and all the kids would be there playing with the water and stuff, because it was just, it was just an amazing dynamic atmosphere. Sometimes that did backfire a little bit, but it was it was just really lovely family filled. So it is a celebratory thing. Um, which with our British reserve can sometimes be a little bit tricky. But we have to break through that because actually we're not British, we're kingdom. And so it's a celebration. We know they'll be celebrating in heavenly places. And I tell you, I'm just thinking during the worship, um, last year at our men's camp, um, we were preaching the gospel on a Saturday night, and and guys started to come forward. We recently let's have it, you know, come forward and give your life to Christ. And so one bloke asked about five times, and then eventually someone came forward. As <laughs> you can tell, an evangelist, an evangelist keeps asking, come, you know, come forward, get forward. So eventually. <laughs> Someone came forward and everyone started clapping and the clapping turned to a cheer and then we asked again and more people started coming forward and more people started coming forward. People making first time careers to Christ. Then I noticed things started to play out. I noticed a, a bloke come forward and walk past some other guys and and these other guys, like, they're like blokey blokes, like men, you know, who make things some steel. Men. They started to cry. You know, as, as their mate walked forward, and then this guy, this guy in his 20s, who looked really trendy, I presume he was trendy, but he looked trendy, I mean, I haven't got a trendy meter, but he looked trendy to me, and he came forward, and he came past an old bloke, um, old, old, you know, like 80s, and, uh, no offence, and, and came past, to the senior member in the, in the house, uh, so he came past, and, um, Actually, I said to someone who worked that day, so what did you define as old? And they said, oh, when you're 40s. I thought, well, you're fired. Right, so, like, yeah. um, they, and, and the old man saw the trendy dude walk past, and he burst into tears. And I was watching this young man's face as he came forward, and it was like his face was changing. I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, not because he was getting emotional, it was like his eyes were becoming clear, his face was glowing with joy, you know. And I got the story later that the guy who came forward and made all the men cry, 
They were RAF pilots. And, and the guy who came forward was a massive cynic. And they dared him to come along. And he hated all that stuff. Hated it. He came forward and gave his life to Christ. And, and the old man, that was his grandson. And his grandson wasn't a believer. And he watched him come forward and get born again in front of his eyes. Isn't that amazing? And, and that's a celebration, isn't it? I tell you, we haven't got a baptistry at the gathering camp we do, but I'd be so, being a radical, non-conformist, rebel person, I'd, I'd get them all in there. Baptise them. The lot, Anglicans, Methodists, I don't care, get them all in. Baptise them, die to the old way of life, raise to new life. It's such a phenomenal thing. And, and the reason I mentioned this right at the start is that we have a duty to create a sense of family in our home groups, our missional communities, in our homes, in our interactions, even stuck in the traffic jam with people. We have a duty to create a sense of kingdom and family that actually this thing is full of joy and it's amazing. Now, I'm not saying we can't have a bad day because we all have bad days. We all go through seasons of tough times, but the overriding dynamic of this community should be welcome, shouldn't it? You know, explore this amazing thing we call the Christian faith. We don't want to be on this thing where we're on a back foot, where the world is pressuring us. So the dynamic is how do we survive this evil pagan nation? You know, how do we survive all this external pressure? So let's bunker down. Actually, what we want is this is amazing and, and the kingdom is advancing and people's lives are being transformed. Now, we're going to come on to Acts 8 in a minute, but this is just setting the scene for you, really. I may have told some people about this before. I can't remember. Because of my advancing years, I'm having slight memory issues on the short term. Anyone else here not remember what they did yesterday? Oh, is that just me? People say to me, well, how was your week? I went, I don't know. Did we have one? I can't remember. I think that's because my head's too full of stuff. Anyway, years ago, uh, when we were planting a church in the 90s, um, we had a guy come to faith called Mickey, and I've actually bumped into him uh, recently, which is the real joy, and he's still going on the look with the Lord. But Mickey was a purveyor of stolen goods, and, um, and uh, was an amphetamine addict, and he liked to spliff, and, and he was a bit of a one, really. And he lived with a woman who was running a local brothel, <laughs> so, and had a five-year-old daughter. Anyway, so that was the backstory. Uh, so... Um, Mick started coming to, to church and he'd sometimes come uh, to church having taken some amphetamine like speed or, I mean, you could tell which drug you're taking because he's either been sleepy or he's a bit like this. <laughs> so, but he used to come. I don't know why he used to come, but he used to come. And then his partner, Leslie, started coming as well and she was running the alternative business. And... Um, and they would come to church, and I thought that was amazing, because we had all these sort of amazing sort of... It was like a Guy Ritchie movie, for those of you who know what I'm talking about. Our church is a bit like a Guy Ritchie movie, with these amazing characters, you know, who were, who were turning up. And they were discovering Jesus. So um, I was in my 20s, a little bit clueless and naive, but there was one time in a party when Mick, who was, um, he was a black guy with loads of dreadlock hair, and he was quite cool, and he came dancing over to me, and he went... And this is the first time I've been dancing the party without taking drugs, you know. And I went, oh, cool. So um, I ended up sort of dad dancing next to him, you know, and uh, we're having a little chat. And, um, 
And I said, why are you not taking anything like this? And he said, because I met Jesus last night. He said, so I don't need, I don't need me speed. And then he said, I'm st he said, I'm still smoking a little bit of cannabis. He said, but I, but I met Jesus last night. I said, how'd that happen? He said, I listened to a worship tape. That was when we had tapes. 90s, some people still had tapes. For those of you who don't know, that was a little plastic box with some tape in it. it used to play music. It's a miracle when you think about it. And then, um, so we went forward of that. And, and, and I thought, well, we'll baptise you. We baptise you. So two weeks later, I baptised him. And, and there's another story behind that, which is quite remarkable. That night was chaos. Um, loads of people came from the estate. It was a story for another time. But I got letters about dancing, Mick. Because people said, why would you baptise him? And I said, because he knows Jesus. And they said, yeah, but what are you telling our kids? And it's actually happening in an open floor church meeting. Someone said, what are you teaching our children? So I'm teaching our children that God loves them. And they said, but, but he's, he's living with someone who runs a business. And I said, well, I know. I said, but he's met Jesus. And they said, well, that's not, not on. And I said, well, we need to think very carefully. Think very carefully about this. Are you saying if he gets hit by the number 32 bus, he's in heaven? Obviously, if he dies by the number 32 bus. And they said, yes. Okay, so he's good enough for Jesus because he's repentant. But he's not quite good enough for the local church. What are we saying? And I started to put bombs in people's brains, you see. Because what happened was, his whole life didn't miraculously transform to be a middle class life. Because it, it doesn't. It takes time. But he was showing fruits of repentance. He had dropped some drugs. He stopped selling stolen goods. He got a job with security cord driving a van. <laughs> Seriously. And then his partner started coming to church. And she gave her life to Christ three months later because she saw the acceptance. And she dropped her job in the aforementioned business. And she met people in the church who had visited the aforementioned business who had also come to Christ. And the kingdom started to break out. But it upset religious people. Because grace always does. It offends our sensitivities. And it's tricky. It's messy. Grace is messy. You know, I I, I believe in, in in stop it, you know, I apologise. I believe in repentance. I believe in holiness. But I also understand that people have to walk a journey. And we're not spiritual policemen. Our job is to make sure that people keep facing towards Jesus. And along the way. As with all of us, you know, we carry some residue of our previous life. And some people will carry more residue than others. And we have to look past the residue and hope that eventually it all clears up. And we pray that it does. But we have to journey with people. And the world is becoming more complex. And people are living broken lives. And the more and more we penetrate into that society and world, 
the more and more we're going to have to deal with the residue in people's lives. And that's what happens in Acts 8. And there's a radical solution to it. So I'm going to read it to you. It's a famous account. Now, an angel of the Lord, this is Acts 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the unit was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice, and who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth, which we know comes from Isaiah 53. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. And when they come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. You will remember, of course, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he went into the temple and he sat down and he opened up the scrolls, he actually quoted what we read in Isaiah, and also now we read in Isaiah, uh, Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, set the captive free, bind up the broken heart, he recover sight of etc, etc. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, Luke 4, 18. And then, not only does Jesus start to teach it, he actually starts to demonstrates it and one of the first encounters miraculous encounters we have is the miracle where Jesus touches a man with leprosy and it is well known now of course that if you were a leper in the ancient Middle East you were pretty much snookered you 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 were stuffed you were an outcast you are spiritually unclean you're a scumbag not only are you physically unclean because people were worried that you'd get leprosy you contract it, but also you were ceremonially unclean. And you'll remember the story, won't you? That the man says, would, would, you, would you make me well? Would you heal me uh, are you, if you're willing? And Jesus says, I am willing. And, and doesn't just say, be healed at a distance. He reaches out and touches him, which is profound. Because he doesn't just do a spiritual healing. He actually makes physical contact with an outcast. And what we don't realise is that what Jesus was actually doing in that narrative was make himself to be seen to be spiritually unclean. Because he identified himself with a spiritually unclean person. And a miracle happens, isn't it? And not only is he healed, but this man, this leper, has physical contact 
which is incredible. He probably hadn't been touched for years. He used to have to walk from town to town proclaiming that he was unclean. And you see this a lot in scripture, actually. Jesus spending time with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus touching people who were spiritually unclean. Jesus identifying himself with the lowest of the low. The people that the world thought were scumbags. Jesus not only spent time with them, he identified himself with them. And the grumbling broke out in the background. The grumbling. The grumbling religious masses. Happens all the time. Do you know, you can, you can speak about having a place of welcome, but be actually looking down your nose at some people. Now we can get very, very religious. You can even be looked down on because of your accent. I know this, because I've been both blessed and cursed with a Romford heritage. Joe, you know, I actually got introduced once as, this is Carl Beach, don't let his accent fool you, he's quite bright underneath it. Quite bright underneath it, seriously. And someone else once said, you don't sound like someone with two degrees. I thought, yeah. Made the prejudices that can exist, and they can exist amongst us. They can exist in here. I remember I used to spend a lot of time, Karen and I, with, a, with people who were very broken back in the day when we were pastoring. So our home was open to people who were very broken. And I think I mentioned it before that uh, I got letters from a local pastor saying you're spending too much time with someone committing adultery. There's a woman who was in, a, in an adulterous relationship and we were trying to point it to Christ. A very broken woman who had suffered serious abuse in her past. We actually got a letter from ministers in the town saying that we were bringing a gospel into disrepute by spending too much time with someone who was in sin. From ministers of the gospel! Can't believe it, can you? I should have kept it. I should have opened up a Knox file with all the ungracious letters that I got during that period, which chucked it a bit. But I think I've read that somewhere before that people did that back in the day. It's amazing. Now you're thinking... What's this got to do with the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, the more and more I looked at this, and I, the more and more I let it sort of percolate in my brain, the more and more stuff started to come out to me, just very simple thoughts really, around this. Because I'm, I'm thinking, I always think, that you should take a magnifying glass, not just to the passage, but to the context, and also the question, why is this here? Why, why was that included in the canon of the scripture? Why did the Holy Spirit ensure that that story was there? Do you ever ask that question? Out of all the different encounters people would have, why that one? Is it just because, you know, there is a miraculous translocation or weird whisking away in the spirit? I don't think so. I mean, that's interesting in and of itself towards the end there. Hard for us to get our heads around. Personally, I've only translocated a few times by accident, but it's not a regular thing for me either. But I, I think, why, why are there? People are thinking, did he really? No, it's just a joke, just a pleasure, just wondering. Why, why? Well, I then started to look back to see how, A, people saw people from other nations, where it sits in scripture, and B, what people thought about eunuchs. Why, why, why that? I think that's quite interesting. And, and I went back into stuff that we don't often preach from, like Leviticus, 
in Deuteronomy. And I found prohibitions for people who are eunuchs from actually entering the temple. A eunuch, most likely in those days, would have been castrated, probably about age eight. So they never actually properly went through puberty. And they, they could have, they'd be men with, with female characteristics, didn't actually develop properly. But then they would be often be trusted advisors in the court, in the royal court. Uh, I think it was either they thought that was safer or what, I don't know, but it was just a practice. The last eunuch actually died in the 1920s, I think, who had served in the Chinese courts. But it's, so it's in, even in recent times, this has happened. But actually, the Jews were quite fastidious about some of their rules. And in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, this eunuch, who was a very high official, you know, a treasurer, probably had a lot of wealth and influence actually, serving right. I mean, they would have the ear of the king or the queen. You know, a trusted person, a person of influence, you know, would not be allowed by the Jews potentially to worship in the temple. Now, it doesn't say that here, but I do know that it's a prohibition in the Old Testament. I have no reason to believe why they'd not enforce that at that time. I find that very, very interesting. I also find it interesting that he comes from sort of Sudan or around that area. And so he, he is of a different race. He's a black person. And there is evidence to suggest that in ancient Israel, the Jews could be quite racist, actually, and they're into keeping themselves pure. And you find that in Leviticus in Deuteronomy as well. So then I started to look at this and I think, why is this here? Well, interesting. In Acts 6, you've got the gospel being preached in Jerusalem and the church grows. In Acts 8, the gospel is preached in Judea and Samaria. And at the end of Acts 8, the gospel is being preached to the whole world. I think that's very interesting. And to all people. Now, I think potentially there's some debate as to who the first Gentile convert is, whether it was the whether it was Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch, they don't know. But certainly the first baptism of a, a Gentile or non-Jew person we have in scriptures would seem to be the Ethiopian eunuch. And I think the Holy Spirit is making a point to us. No hindrances, no boundaries, no barriers. The whole world, everyone. No distinctions of class, race, fashion, Accent, smoking, non-smoking, drunk, sober, criminal, clean living. That start point, the gospel, is for everyone. And the church, the more I think about it, should be a melting pot of very interesting people. We're all seeking to journey towards Christ and lose their residue, but not their distinctiveness, if that makes sense. We don't want everyone to start looking like us or you. We don't want a church full of Nevilles. We don't want a church full of Gazes or Pickerings. We celebrate our diversity, don't we? 
But we also celebrate we have someone very strong in the centre we all look to called Jesus Christ who calls us to live a certain way. That's different. Holiness, yes. Leaving stuff behind, yes. Messy at the edges, probably. You know, people slipping up, yeah. That happens. But the gospel for everyone, absolutely. But let me tell you a little warning. The more and more we understand the differences here between holiness and creating a, a community that draws people to the heart of Christ and dealing with our differences and our weirdnesses, the more and more ugly that can actually look to religious people. But the more beautiful it looks to people who are dying without Jesus Christ. That's the challenge. I hope you understand the differences that I'm trying to portray here between living a holy life and understanding that people have to go on a journey to pursue holiness. And I know what's in my life, and I know the things I struggle with. Some of them, you probably can see the stuff that I struggle with. Because by definition, blind spots are hard to see, aren't they? But we all journey in grace with each other, don't we? So the first thing I drew out, gospel for the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The second thing, we are to preach it without hindrance. The third thing, the gospel is for all. And I think this means that we need to learn how to spend time with people who are not like you. That's difficult. We need to start hanging out with people who don't think the same as us. Look the same as us. Behave the same as us. I think our home groups, we need to look at that. I think older people need you know, younger people, and younger people need older people. Trendy people need people like me to keep you on a level playing field. And vice versa. You know, black needs white, white needs black. Asian people need white people, white people need Asian people. We need to see people who are struggling with all kinds of issues and stuff, but journeying towards Jesus. Rich and poor. Professional class, manual labour. Level playing field. Now, you would think, yeah, well, we know this, Carl. Yeah, but we do, but it doesn't seem to happen in our churches. Across the country. And obviously I work in a national world, so I'm looking at this all the time. I can tell you, for instance, just on one snapshot, because I just commissioned a survey by YouGov, that 60% of the UK population is actually working class. But our churches are 60% middle class. And actually, statistically, if you're a working class bloke under the age of 40, you almost stand zero chance of hearing the gospel at the moment in our country. Well, that can't be right, can it? With 60% of our population is working class. So it's just these things that we need to think about, and I think this story is here for that reason. And the final thing I'll mention is that there seems to be this distinctive thing here that when the gospel is heard and it's received, people were baptised. Philip could see no reason why he wouldn't be baptised, which can be a challenge. Because we like to prepare stuff and people. Um, I have had letters of complaint in the past because of spontaneous baptisms. And, and sometimes that's around because we weren't able to alert our family 
And sometimes it's around, well, you haven't discipled them properly. Now, I'll, just to put this out there tonight, that when Dan and I are baptising people tonight, we will make a gospel appeal. Because we think that's what we should be doing. And, and we'll invite people, if they want to be baptised, there is the potential that they could be baptised. And, and we'll have some worship, right? So we can talk to people, just to let you know. And then we'll have a song, and we'll talk to people. And if we think they're ready to be baptised, like the Ethiopian eunuch, we'll baptise them. And what we're doing is we're celebrating the start of their journey into new life. Now, again, I'm saying this because what we do inadvertently in our churches is we create a boundary line without realising it. That says, we want you to meet Jesus, that's one thing. But to belong to the family of God's people is actually in practice a slightly different thing. And you've got to conform. We want you to smell a certain way. Seriously. Look a certain way. Behave a certain way. But I tell you, ain't right. Ain't right. What we want to do is see if they're actually they're turning around and there's an arrow pointing out of them that's pointing towards Jesus and they're starting to walk towards him. So we're not policing people to see if they conform. We're seeing if they're turning around and they're facing towards Jesus. And as part of that, we want to see repentance. You know, and that's very hard to measure on the spot in an evening. But you can tell when you're talking to someone. You can tell. You see it in their eyes. You see it in their face. You see the brokenness mixed with joy. You can even say to someone, you know, tell me this thing you know Jesus died for. And often they'll just be able to say, I know I did that wrong. I've been living my life selfishly. Or You see it. Well, that's the start. What we tend to do is think, well, they're smoking. So they've got to stop smoking. Or they're nicking the pick and mix every Sunday from the news agent. They've got to stop doing that. And the Holy Spirit's actually saying, actually, the big deal with them is they're selfish. And they're going to start living for other people. I worry about the nicotine addiction you know, in six months' time. I knew that the Holy Spirit was breaking out in our church in Billericay when I used to walk out of the services in the morning and find a big pile of dog ends outside the church, which used to annoy some people. But I thought, this is amazing. There are people coming here who are finding Jesus Christ and we've seen their lives turn around. It brings its challenges. It's like, Carl, you could baptise someone and they might have a hidden sin. Yeah. We get people joining our churches who, who slip up and do sinful things. What, like you? <laughs> very, be very careful. So we're not here to be policemen, Dan and I, or the leadership, or you. We are all here to create a dynamic that is excited about Jesus Christ. So the gospel is preached in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to all the world, boldly, without hindrance. This is old Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria might be Mansfield and Alpherton. The whole world could be a ministry we help set up in Africa. Or something like that. And if we get this right, this place is going to be very interesting. And the pastoral workload could be very interesting as we try and keep people focused towards Jesus. 
But if you ask me why this story is in scripture, I think it's trying to tell us that. And I think this was a message to the Jews who are converting. This is going to look different. No restrictions on the temple now. This is for everyone. That challenge, that's, a, that's a challenge for us. Too many churches just look like they're full of the same people. I just, some of you says that ain't right. So we've just got to work at it. So Father, we pray you'd help us in these things. I guess, Father, for some of us it might be we have to soften our hearts a bit. We have to undo some baggage, some stuff that we've been carrying about what Christians look like. We pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, as we grow together, this would be a place of extreme welcome, that would be a place that's beautiful to people who are perishing without Jesus, but might be ugly and offensive to people who are religious. But help us to be a community of grace. Pursuing Jesus, pursuing holiness, preaching repentance, explaining the gospel, calling people to a higher way of living, flowing in the grace that you've shown us. And we, we pray, I know all of us have prayed this prayer, Father. As we journey towards you, we'd see many, many, many people coming to know Jesus Christ and being baptised and living for him. In Jesus' name. Amen.